Hey folks, join us at the Radio Carum Trivia Night on Friday the 1st of March at the Carum Patterson Lake Sports Pavilion. Tickets are only $25 per person and includes entry into our door prize and a drink on arrival. Wonderful. Don't pass up this opportunity to win bragging rights for the rest of the year and win some fabulous prizes. Tickets are still available at Radio Carum's website, radiocarum.org. We'll see you there, folks. I'm Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. We are broadcasting to you live on Radio Karam from the unceded lands of the Eastern Kulin Nation. As always, if you'd like to join the conversation this evening, please text us in the studio on 0493 213 831. My conversation partner this evening is Jonathan Gutman, General Manager of Planning and Place at Kingston City Council. Prior to his role, he's held a range of leadership positions across the planning and development functions of the City of Kingston, since joining the organisation in 1995. These roles have involved leading the formulation of many of the strategies that have and will continue to influence the future direction of the City. He holds a Bachelor Degree of Applied Science in Urban Policy and Planning from RMIT University. Welcome to the program, Jonathan. Thanks, Alana. Great to be with you. Seems we may have already gotten a text message through. Like people are very, very, very keen tonight. And it seems they've just asked, can we all meet with the planning minister at Morty Fest to discuss the greenest streets in Australia and maybe a nightingale for Morty Kingston? Sounds like an inspiring idea. I can't speak on behalf, obviously, of the planning minister, but she is someone who's passionate about our our local area, obviously, as a local MP, and I think is really intrigued with um, a range of things the Nightingale project team have been doing. I, I think she may have even visited some of the projects, so they will be um, really familiar with her. Whether or not she's at our festival on the weekend, I can't confirm, but um, who knows? Who I'm knows? sure she's always welcome here in the oh, city of Kingston. She, more than welcome. She's got her, one of her offices in the city of Kingston. There, there we go. Thanks, listener, for your text. I guess everyone's very, very keen tonight and well, we're lucky to have someone on the show this evening who's so integral for almost 30 years in really the strategic and policy direction at the City of Kingston. So before we jump ahead into that, the first question I do like to ask all my guests is what's your earliest memory of a building or place? Probably... Um first house I can recall living in was in Moorabbin. Um, the house is no longer there. Um, and I kind of recall the garden space particularly. I quite enjoyed being outside. So the garden space is probably more familiar for me than the, the interior of the home. Um, and I just recall, you know, one of those old plastic um, water pools and a sand thing and, um, you know, the push carts that we had as kids and the like. Did you have um, the little clamshell swimming pool? Yeah, the blue one. It was yeah. actually the the blue clamshell pool. 
And then we had one that was blue plastic with metal around the edges. I think we got um, we became myself and my brother became really good swimmers. I think, and we we um upsized to the the next size up. Yeah, that that's probably my earliest memory. I reckon of um, the type of um, my experience with with a home or a house. Yeah. What made you want to pursue planning? Um, for me, it was um really high school. So. I went to a, a local um, secondary college and I met the most amazing geography teacher who um, taught me a lot about geography was more than about planets. Geography is very much about the natural environment. Um, and I did a bit of psychology. I did politics in year 12. I did IT. Wasn't super strong in maths, but um, they were kind of, they all kind of came together and this teacher said, why not? try planning and I'd done this project for memory like a master planning exercise for Brayside Park um, and all things led to planning so I ended up at RMIT as you said in your intro. Amazing gosh the power of good geography teachers I think geography for me I can really relate to that because geography for me in high school was also a massive passion as was art yeah put that together what do you get you get architecture. I so understand. <laughs> How how do you connect to good design? Um, I need to see it a fair bit. So I need to go and look at places and I need to talk. And we're, I'm so lucky in the role I've got. I talk to a lot of design professionals a lot. So I, I get to immerse myself in design um, discussions. Um, but I like going and looking at it. Um, I enjoy my – look – I've got a couple of young kids, so I don't get to watch a lot of TV of choice, myself and my partner, but our standard is Thursday night at 8 o'clock. We try and get into all the grand design stuff. The Australian um, or the British? Well, hey, New Zealand's starting this week. Ooh. And from my perspective, I actually think New Zealand is often leading. Um, so I think they're back on this week after kind of a restoration show that, that, that's been on the past few weeks. So I enjoy doing that. Um, have grown up with Green Magazine and a few other things that kind of keep me connected, I feel. But probably these days a lot of it is face-to-face -face contact with design professionals and learning, you know, you mentioned the Nightingale Project, going and seeing some things in the city and well beyond Kingston as well. I feel that keeps me connected. How do you personally define good design? I'm learning more about the function of the people living within the structure being as important as the structure itself. Um, so more and more I'm thinking about who the end users are and that might be a bit about the planner in May. Um, but, you know, we've recently had an opportunity to look at projects like Morris Moore, which is in Moorabbin, which Clark Hopkins did, and it's been a really innovative kind of commercial project um, that's got a range of different activities and different people buzzing around. Really phenomenal example of adaptive reuse. It's awesome because like in our world, um, normally a site like that, which is a couple of hectares, would just be knocked down and new factories would be put on it. But the developer just had this vision to really approach something really different and I think was driven by what the site could do in terms of the culture of um, the community that they wanted to create it's part of the project. Mm. It's because it's quite a socially sensitive site. There used to be a Philip Morris, a cigarette factory, and for as long as I could remember, it's like, you know, it's this horrible building, big horrible building, big yeah. horrible industry, it's a cigarette factory. And this intervention managed to well, dissect and cut into it, but cut 
cut out some of those negative connotations and, and created something new for the site? How, how, how do you feel about it? Oh, it's such a, I think it speaks volumes for just the evolution of the world as we understand it. Like we look at a lot of the public health issues that we confront today. Many, many fewer people are smoking. But the fact that that building, and apparently at the time it was the first investment Philip Morris made in the Southern Hemisphere. So they chose that site in Moorabbin to do that. The fact that we've been able to come so far to open up what that building was to all the disparate, different people that are attracted to it each day, I think speaks volumes for the adaptability and, and vision that we can have in the cities um, today. So, yeah, I do reflect on that. I also went there when it had just sold and it stunk. Mm-hmm. Like there was just a, the most horrible tobacco smell through this massive concrete structure. And concrete is porous, so it actually does take on moisture and smells. And we don't often think of buildings as being part of those processes. We think they're sort of hard and dry, but they're they're actually much more absorbent than we sense. And Indeed, often. and that could there wouldn't be a better example of what um, uh, of the legacy of the building. And I think the architects and builders had such a challenge to actually. Um, remove that problem from the building but it kind of speaks to its legacy I feel a bit and socially and culturally challenge that while keeping it as a memory because in a way sometimes not for just for sustainability reasons but for historical we keep buildings that don't have a very nice past and we have to reuse them yeah and they're you know Pentridge is probably good not in Kingston obviously but a, a really practical example of that um We've had a number of different buildings in our city recently repurposed um, for really practical things, and that you know that they have had they have had different histories. But it, it's kind of nice that um, the building's still there and it has a contemporary purpose. I feel. How does the strategic vision around planning in Kingston support that adaptive reuse? So, look, Kingston's not the inner city, so we yeah. make no secrets that we we don't have a huge amount of heritage. But I think the council's work really hard on its own buildings and on buildings that it's purchased to kind of repurpose. And probably a really nice example for Kingston is the home of our youth services team now, which is um, in an old Masonic lodge in Mordialic, where the council made the conscious decision to actually purchase the site, restore it, and now it's the home of really our, our youngest people in the municipality that kind of connect with Kingston on a regular basis. So... It's kind of a nice story in going from being a Masonic Lodge to now being the home of the young people that live that you know interact with our, our council on a daily basis. What about uh, some of the mid-century modern heritage that we're so lucky to have around this area? Does council have an appetite for acquiring some of those properties? Probably not buying them, um, just because we can't buy everything that looks amazing. Um, but definitely working with the landowners. And I know on your show, I understand you've had Councillor Chris Hill previously. Yes. And he speaks passionately about just over the other side of Kingston, um, the work that the City of Bayside have done with a number of property owners that have mid-century dwellings to really try and reinforce their preservation. We've got a couple, particularly in Mentone, and what's really fortunate is even without the kind of planning tools that we put in place, the owners are passionate about protecting them. So I, I do live in hope um, that those kind of layers of history of our city can be really well preserved, really recognising that, you know, Kingston's largely formed post-war and there are, there are just different stages that do make us a bit different to a number of the inner city councils that 
have a significant amount of their, their buildings in heritage overlays. We do have some special buildings in Kingston and hopefully we'll see more of them come up on the Melbourne Open House program even. I remember just yeah. last year's Melbourne Open House went to go see the Kingston Town Hall by then Bates Smart McCutcheon yeah. and, and heard the Grand Wurlitzer Court concert organ be, be played. It's amazing. And it's kind of like this secret that people don't know about that that organ is there and until you actually hear it and see it and understand how it works in terms of the the infrastructure that's in the roof for the town hall to make it work. The trap door alone, how it comes up. I know. It's like it's a really special thing. And then I think we had um, Mentone Station, which is state heritage listed, also part of Open House. Um, but there are so many more buildings. You know, the, the council worked really hard around the Mentone Hotel to really make a big effort to try and find an adaptive reuse for that building. Which Councillor Chris Hill fought. I'm sure he did. Well. He It'll was um, he was absolutely passionate about it and I think it drove him into being part of our council, um, just his work with Save the Edgy, yeah. I do want to ask about Mentone. There's been quite a big civic redevelopment there, particularly well, in association with the Level Crossing Works. Yeah. That's a state government project that's implemented by the LXRA Level Crossing Removal Authority and did Kingston make contributions to that project to really enhance the plaza? Yeah, we did. Just while I'm on Mentone, if I may, Go if you it. can get down there now, you'll see massive scaffold around the Kilbreda Tower. And to the school's credit, they literally cut the tower off, had it restored and have recently put it back. And that was the old coffee palace in Mentone, which is very close to the station. Um, and we're just so proud that Outcomes like that are now happening in our city. They're also government are restoring the um, heritage chimney in Hyatt as well. Coming back to Mentone, we did make a financial contribution. We were adamant that we didn't want a big rail trench through Mentone alone. We, we loved the fact that the government worked really closely with us to protect the state heritage buildings and they're hopefully soon to be repurposed. Um, but what we were really worried about was more an urban landscape design issue around you're going to have this trench between the, the, the road and those old buildings and then the, the station further beyond that. So council put in a couple of million dollars to actually work with the Level Crossing Removal Project to bridge that trench and create this new public open space, which one of our Rotary groups has recently been using for a market. And once we get those two buildings activated, it's just going to be a special place um, and a way of celebrating our station buildings in not a dissimilar way to, you know, Canterbury Road where there's a nursery on the St Kilda Light Rail at the moment. So, um, It's really critical co-location because you can drop off your kid and then go to work. 6,000 of them go through Mentone on a daily basis because of all the schools. So it is like Kid Mecca. So one of the, one of the um, I think, the pending design challenges is Mentone's one of our oldest suburbs, but then we've got a million kids running through it on a daily basis. So finding the right mix of tenants for that space and the right curation of the space around it is going to be a fascinating exercise um, for council and for the future occupier of the building. Who drove that ad advocacy to create that piazza in Mentone? We've, um, I think... We're really fortunate. I'm very biased to Kingston, as you'll hear for the next hour, but we're really fortunate at Kingston to have some amazing thinkers in our urban design team. We've got architects that work for us. We've got some landscape architects. We've had councillors who have had terrific vision about how these level crossing removal projects would go. So we did a lot of work to kind of put out our vision for how Mentone should work internally and with some um, supporting consultants. And that led to what we see today, which... Um, 
we're learning more and more with these larger government projects. We really need to get on the front foot and put out some really bold ideas to try and drive um, the project to really deliver, you know, the most significant community benefit we possibly can. Yeah, I'm really curious about that interaction between local and state government and the opportunity you do or don't have to embed yourself in this major infrastructure. Look, we're seeing one of the largest levels of construction across the state since the gold rush. Yeah, it's, a, it's an awesome question for us too because I think our city at any one time has about 15% of the total level, level crossings being removed in Melbourne. We've now got the Suburban Rail Loop project. So there's this, un, you know, from a planner's perspective, to have transport and land use talking together is amazing. We, um, we've done a lot of work with – we used BKK, for example, to do some work for us in Parkdale, just looking at the um, – they're an architecture firm, obviously – looking at um, the way the Parkdale station should work and we've used other landscape architects and designers. Um, we've spoken to the government about green infrastructure on Suburban Rail Loop and, you know, the early visioning document, which they've just recently finished consulting on, specifically talks to green infrastructure because we were able to get people like Hanson Partnership who helped us with that work and Oculus who are an LA firm um, really kind of inspire the government to what this infrastructure could be. And, you know, you look to Europe and you look to other places and, green infrastructure is kind of embedded in their projects. So we're convinced that with things like the Victorian Office of the Government Architect and others that are advising government on these projects that they're committed, our, um, our biggest challenge is just really pushing the case, reinforcing the environmental value that comes from doing those, you know, 100-year-long projects well and maybe to kind of draw a parallel with one that wasn't done well. Our team often reflect on the Marabin Station in 1959 that was essentially a level crossing removal. Um, but what essentially happened is they, they you know, made a big cut through Marabin, which completely disconnects that town hall you are just talking about, yeah. Alana, um, with the town centre. And we've really worked hard to try and um, avoid the sins of the past, I guess, in terms of how we've looked at those crossing removal projects and increasingly how we're looking at the suburban rail loop project now. Mm, that's really good to hear. I was just about to ask about the OVGA and whether or not you regularly engage with them or it's an opportunity you have to carve out during a state significant project. The state are pretty good. Like there's usually an urban design panel that get put up for the state projects and there's always OVGA representatives. Um, I think the state are pretty able to identify what projects need OVGA input. We certainly think... Um, They've been effective participants in the level crossing removal project. Occasionally they've been involved too with some private developments as well. And just the calibre of the people now at the OVGA and they're, you know, a lot of them are towards um, the end of their career so they're really looking to make a contribution and they're seeing public funded projects as being that place to largely do it, which is terrific because this is an organisation that didn't exist a decade ago in any substantive form. So it's been great that that kind of design, the, the required design eyes are embedded into state state infrastructure planning. Yeah, and that source of advice to state government and to really be championing good design or pushing for better design outcomes, but their resources are stretched so thin, their f funding is, is reducing. I'm wondering, does local government take initiative to, to engage with them or say some of their policy documents like government a smart client is... Is that a staple in your office? 
um, a bit. One of the things we've really worked on is trying to reinforce the longevity of the projects. So we look at projects. We did urban heat modelling for the stabling um, proposed for the suburban rail loop and we put forward an idea that green infrastructure really needs to be embedded in it because it's, you know, going to be there for 100 years. It will create an urban heat island if designed like earlier stabling sites. So we've tried to kind of play in that space. We've also played in the space of integrated water. Like one of the things Kingston prides itself on and there are plenty of wetland projects and the like around Kingston is our ability to deliver those kind of integrated water projects around civil infrastructure so I guess what we've tried to do is use use our organisation and use people who support our organisation to put forward those kind of ideas so that they're embedded in the thinking of the um, what are often engineers and others who are kind of leading those larger government projects. Um, and we're finding that we're getting some success, but you, the, the absolute key is to reinforce the longevity that they're going to be here 100 years and that, you know, when you think about places in the world that look at our own Flinders Street Station, you only get one chance to build icons and the icons or not icons are going to be there for another 100 years. So, And if you don't finish it, nobody will. She's still unfinished Flinders Street Station. Indeed, 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 indeed. We're very confident, though, that the Suburban Rail Loop and all the other projects promised in the City of Kingston will be delivered by the, the government. You, you mentioned water. The Edith Thal Seaford wetlands, even though the, the land where we're broadcasting from now used to be part of the ancient Karim Karim Swamp, yeah. and the, the wetlands as they are today are managed by Melbourne Water. How is Council working with them? How is Council collaborating? Melbourne Water have been really awesome. Around We, um, we built a wetland in Namajira Park a few years ago with three levels of government that funded it. Melbourne Water have always had a commitment to integrated water management. Melbourne Water benefit from the work we can do to treat stormwater before it hits um, the bay. Um, probably practically at the moment in terms of our relationship with the water companies, the most exciting project for us in terms of um, integrated Water is a project that Southeast Water and the State Department of Environment have kind of worked with us on to bring recycled Class A water back into Kingston to water areas. Um, to re- and it's 1.8 gigalitres of water, which for is... For irrigation, right? For irrigation on golf courses, mm-hmm. for market gardens, for our parks, for industrial users that are apparently data centres need like huge amounts of water. So if anyone wants to build a data centre in the city of Kingston, we can supply Class A recycled water, um, which I didn't know. Till. For the cooling of the air Yeah, for the – yeah. So and apparently they're really high water users. So um, projects like that are important because they're part of – they are part of um, the fabric of a functional city. The wetlands are super important and we've done a, you know, a lot of work around urban heat in the city. And we can drop temperatures by six or seven percent. Six, sorry, six or seven degrees. And you know, on a day like today, we know why that infrastructure is so important. Not everyone in Kingston benefits from being close to foreshore, so not everyone benefits from having the luxury of sea breezes towards the end of the day and the like. So, it's particularly important for us that we pursue these, these kind of projects um, in the inner parts of the city. And without Melbourne Water support, we just wouldn't be able to do them. Are there any wetland revitalisation projects coming up for us at all? We've got a really exciting one in the wind kind of in Brayside, south of an industrial estate between Aspinall Gardens and Brayside. 
that's essentially land that's been preserved for decades for a wetland and we're actively working with Melbourne Water to try all the planning's done but to get capital funding to make that project occur and that really will treat a lot of the water that comes out of Monash and connect up with the wetlands at the waterways. So one of the other things that's important is that our wetlands are kind of connected for biodiversity purposes and ecological corridors. Yeah, they're Ramsar wetlands. Yeah. under the Ramsar Convention. I know, and it's such a significant thing that we have in our city that really needs to be protected and we need to do more around um, just habitat corridors. It was amazing when the Mordialic Freeway got built, people had to actually think about the way birds fly and what impact the, the road may have on bird movement. Um, so it's very much a key component part of our thinking, particularly um, the Ramsar wetlands for any issue that we tackle south of Mordialic Creek. Huge, huge responsibility, but also such a privilege to have that here and to, to be custodians in a way. Yeah, I think um, we we have an airport, we have industrial areas, we have housing, we have a bay, we have a green wedge, we have Ramsar wetlands. I might sound like I'm being a salesman for the city of Kingston, but it is kind of all the attributes of what a city needs can be found here. And now the transport infrastructure is really following um, with some of the bigger projects that are being built as well. You mentioned the heat mapping work that you've done and you're wearing a Net Zero 2030 T-shirt. How is council preparing for the challenges and necessary adaptions, mitigations we're going to need to go yeah. forward to 2030 and beyond? So within the organisation, some of the things that we're desperately trying to do is look at the way, for example, we collect rubbish and the tr what the trucks do in terms of their emissions profile. So there's the movement towards hydrogen trucks at the moment and looking at what's possible in that space where our waste contractors would be essentially almost halving our total emissions. We've got an old swimming centre at Waves which contributes 25% of our total emissions due to the gas that's required to actually... Um, keep the water warm and run the aquatic centre. So we are building a new one in Mordialic that will have a very different approach to um, its environmental credentials. Those things are really important, but what's absolutely important in terms of our net zero objective by 2030 is what we can do with the outside world. So not just what we're doing within the organisation, but 40% of our emissions in the city come from our industrial areas. So... Um, we do pride ourselves on having people who produce food, people who've produced food have um, historically just relied necessarily on gas to actually allow for that production. One of the things that's amazing at the moment is things like um, we've got a company in Mordialic that are looking at what's called a biodigester to actually reuse the byproducts of their food manufacturing to create the energy they need to run their food plant. We need to do so many of those projects to meet our net zero targets. We need to get our factory roofs covered in solar panels. We need to be thinking really creatively about um, how we store energy. And it's you know it's exciting that opposite the Eastern Treatment Plant now there's a 15 megawatt solar farm. But we need to be thinking about how we capture and store that energy locally and not have to send it back into a really expensive distribution. And is that council funding support for these projects. Say so, I'm a factory owner. Yep. I want to put solar panels on my roof. Oh, Maybe we, I can't afford it. I what, have what just else? the solution for you, Alana. <laughs> um, we've got an amazing person in our Kingston business team who will free of charge to any business listening today or any business interested, pop down um, and actually do the modelling for them because one of the things our business community have told us is 
we don't have time. This is a nice thing to do, but we don't have time to do the feasibility. To meet our target and to meet the objectives on my T-shirt, um, we need to help business. So we've actually employed someone to do what a private consultant would normally do for those businesses. And his name's Anthony. He's been doing a heap of work um, and he is looking at meeting any business he can to really help them. And he's really drawing um, great outcomes. We also have a funding mechanism where we can support low interest loans as well. And we're also really making people aware of, you know, increasing government grants. Recently, there's been a lot of discussion about batteries as well and the need to start to think about government subsidy for battery in a similar vein to what the government have historically done, particularly early years with solar panels as well. So we want to be at the kind of forefront of helping people achieve those objectives. Um, but, yeah, Anthony is an absolute um, gem in our organisation and a really unique new role that we've brought in to help directly help businesses with our, our carbon emissions. How can listeners targets. connect with him? What do they need to search up? Um, they need to search up Anthony Thyer, T-H-I-Y-A-R, or contact our Kingston business team and he will be out in a flash to help you. Amazing. Hopefully that can help some small businesses on that It already path. is. It so already is, yeah. Incredible. One of the one of the things that I'm kind of quite curious about and I've, I've been feeling the last few weeks, you know, as I go out to run an errand, the trees are still small. They're still young. Some of these natives are really slow growing. What's some of the urban forestry tree cover strategy that council is working on to mitigate that urban heat island effect to shade the street to make it a bit more walkable as our summers yeah, get hotter. I understand you've also had other people on your show that have spoken to that with great passion. Um, they do start small, the trees, but I take comfort in every time we put one in, we hope it survives and develops a strong canopy. Some practical examples at the moment and one we're really proud of, which our open space team have done. We got When they dug up the... Um, Bentley, Ormond and McKinnon level crossings had too much soil. And we had a problem because we had an old landfill site, which is about four hectares, so quite a big parcel of land um, in our green wedge. And we did a, a deal with the government to bring the soil to that site, which on most landfills it's hard to plant a lot of trees because you penetrate the, um, the clay cap. On that site, though, the cap was strong enough to have um, – substantial soil and also what that's meant is that this site that was a landfill um, was recently opened as a park and there's an extensive planting there so what's been the absolute epitome of urban heat is about to you know and the trees you're right the trees need to grow but um will we'll soon be a, a cool place for people who are that community the clorinda community who are challenged because they don't have the sea breezes and will now have the new park. And we are doing a range of other parks. Um, we are a lot more aware too of how our open spaces are being used. So um, there are lots of people in our city that play football, cricket, netball and organised sport. But there's also, you know, a lot of people in the community that are asking that our parks are doing more than just providing those functions. So we're looking at opportunity areas to provide more vegetation. But what our urban forest strategy taught us, and this is really important, we can only do so much in the public realm. We have to change the way we think about green infrastructure and landscaping in the private realm, and we have to be able to do that in the context of 
a rapidly changing Melbourne that's increasingly urbanising. So you're looking to change any planning mechanisms, planning scheme mechanisms? Yeah, what's been awesome with our housing strategy, which is before that planning minister that um, someone asked about before and nearly about to be approved, we believe, um, we've done a whole suite of landscape guidelines that are deliberately tailored to landscape architects and architects who are doing projects in Kingston to make sure that the right species are put in the right place and to give people a confidence that things like green walls or green roofs are actually now no longer um, so challenging that they can't be done. So we are putting those guidelines into the planning scheme and we will have expectations that people follow them and use them because if we, if we are to meet our urban forest canopy targets and then progressively increase our urban forest, we need to use the private realm more and more and we need to be innovative about um, where we put green infrastructure, whether that's the top of office buildings or um, whether that's in our industrial areas that are also heat islands. Um, we just need to change the way we look at the role of landscape architecture in the way we go about designing our buildings and our places and urban design as well, obviously. Mm, absolutely. Do you think the current protection for existing trees and existing large trees is, is sufficient? We want to do a bit more work on it. So we've got a local law at the moment um, which essentially protects trees but we, we think we can do a bit more at Kingston with our planning scheme. So we're hoping that we do do um, some more work in terms of protecting particularly the more significant trees. But you look at a suburb which isn't in Kingston like Bo Morris where there's been a concerted effort over decades to protect the tree canopy um, and allow development at the same time. So, you know, in an ideal world, and I, I, my background is planning, I like to think that over the next couple of decades we progressively move to a place where um, we're doing more around tree protection and the kind of amenity and the kind of streetscapes that you see in Bo Morris are are more like parts of Kingston. It won't be everywhere, but there will be opportunities. As for the street and public realm, I think Mentone's a good example, but there are a couple of others in Kingston that we're looking at at the moment, like there's one at the minute that's an old court bowl in an area in Cheltenham where we've got such a significant amount of new four-storey apartment development. And this court bowl serves no practical purpose. Um, so, What's a court bowl for our listeners? Oh, sorry. Oh, um, so if you live in a court, the street's kind of rounded. It doesn't go anywhere. So a court is a bowl. Um, that was town planning speak, everyone, so I do apologise. Um, but this is a court. Yeah. So the court um, doesn't service anything other than this development site. It's quite an unusual kind of configuration of land parcels. So we've been working with the developer to essentially get rid of the road and create an open space for that community and the surrounding now medium to high density community. So we do we have to get smarter at using road space and it's not just about who uses the road space, so trucks and cars and all the others. And bikes. Oh, and so and bikes. Um, if you had our mayor on the phone on this call or texting in, she'd be all over the and bikes bit. She's coming on the program very soon, oh, well, so can't wait to talk um, to her. She will definitely talk about sustainable transport. Yeah, and so and bikes and so and e-scooters and so and pedestrians. Um, they're all big, big parts of a road environment, but increasingly, you know, we're working with the Level Crossing Removal Project in Mordialic and there's a proposal to close one of the roads, Bear Street. 
it won't be a road anymore. So it must be a green space and it must have places for people to sit. And Morty Alec's a pretty popular space, so it must be a place for people to, you know, congregate and have a band rock up on the weekend and play some music. We need to think of our roads differently um, and I think we need to do it particularly in the areas where the density is really changing because you just you can't accommodate all the cars and you need to have sustainable forms of transport. People need to feel like they're comfortable walking um, and if the inner city doesn't teach us anything, e-scooters are going to be part of our future transport and no doubt there'll be other types of transport in the future that need road space as well so and that's all better for business that's all better for shop owners the longer people stay being able to relax and enjoy the street stay longer at shops to walk to the shops it's all better for economic activity it so is and it's also fair because we see a lot of architecture and a lot of buildings where people now have you know a 1.5 meter balcony in width by five meters in length and it's a nice space for a table or a barbecue maybe but it's not a meeting space it's not like that back garden I described that's one of my earliest memories um so public space is meeting space and we we need to have more than the conventional main street shopping centers we need new spaces you mentioned Mentone and you know what we achieved there with the level crossings one of the things we're really proud of with Cheltenham is you have this amazing park on one side of the rail corridor and we work with level crossing team to actually widen the bridge across and then we've progressively started to create an open space on Charman Road and those who know Cheltenham well will know that there's a lot of big buildings starting to form in Cheltenham. Our council um, in Moorabbin bought factories um, just outside the activity centre and have turned them into a park. We need to adapt... Um, our thinking around these kind of opportunities to create green spaces for people to meet because architecture is trying but in some instances it's not actually able to deliver those spaces anymore because of the kind of consolidation objectives that we have for places like Melbourne. And bringing all those considerations about urban heat island and overland flows, the groundwater, stormwater, having permeable green places makes us all healthier. One thing I often come back to with my neighbours is we've got a light-coloured roof and it was very provocative at first, scared yeah. everyone. But then I say it's actually nine degrees cooler under my light-coloured roof. I'm so roof. happy you raised that and I didn't know you were going to. But the reason why I'm so happy is we've been really working hard with this housing amendment and I know it's planning speak, but one of the things we're trying to put into our new planning scheme for housing is that everyone must have a light-coloured roof and there cannot be design professionals saying, well, black's a recessive colour and therefore the roof needs to be black and we, we don't, we're going to have a black roof. Does that mean you're going to get rid of neighbourhood character and we could stop arguing about that I, question? I reckon people have to reflect on things like heritage houses and solar panels and realise some things have to give, things have to change. And light-coloured roofs feels to me like a really good concession for communities to make on the basis that on a day like today, an older person with a, in a house with a dark-coloured roof might either be financially challenged in being able to afford the cost to run the air conditioner that they need or actually be at significant health risk of being in a house with a dark-coloured roof. And I think when you start to think about it that way, it's so... 
it makes compelling our ability, I think, to really push that. And again, with the planning minister sits an amendment to approve that would, I think, be almost the first council in Victoria that mandated light-coloured roofs. So I'm wrapped. You've done your homework, Alana, but I'm wrapped that you um you, you brought that up because it's a significant part of um our initiatives in the housing space. So if architects are listening, and I understand they do to this show and they want to build in the city of Kingston, we're looking forward to seeing light-coloured roofs on future projects. I love light-coloured roofs. I can't wait to see Monument go. But that same reduction in temperature of up to 10 degrees comes from green space as well. So from trees, from parks, from producing green corridors because as we, we know from the data that dense urban environments are 10 degrees hotter so much so. And I think people don't go out in their gardens enough to look at the implications of a positive nature that trees are providing. Like I think about small courtyards that have now, that you know, developments we might have approved 20 years ago that have an established native tree that are potentially, you know, their, their main living area is west-facing and this tree is actively providing um, shade to the roof structure. It's saving them actually living in that house. It so is. And, um, you know, that's a simple thing, but people don't see that necessarily in the homes they live. And it's not expensive. You know, it doesn't have to be green roofs and it doesn't have to be green walls and the like. It can just be very strategic thinking between an architect and an LA in terms of how they look at their planting locations. And I do strongly recommend um, anyone who's interested in this space, we also... We run an amazing program at Kingston called Gardens for Wildlife where we actually have um, a team member who goes out to people's homes and um, teaches them about, you know, what kind of landscape might be suitable in the location that they live based on the kind of ecological vegetation class that's applicable to the area. How can they have lizards return to their garden? How can they provide passive cooling to their, to their unit or to their house? Again, free of charge, but on the basis that we're kind of here wanting to help people with things that not everyone can necessarily see or do themselves. So as well as helping factories solve their energy issue, we want to help people think about their gardens in a much more constructive way than perhaps they have or the house that they've moved into. You know, the previous owner hasn't necessarily been as as garden proud as they might now be. So... That Gardens for Wildlife program, there's a heap on our website. You just Google Kingston Gardens for Wildlife and you're going to find so much useful information. I get my free tube stock every year. Well, that's a bonus of being a Kingston ratepayer. I think the first 5,000 Kingston ratepayers for memory each year can go and collect a few um, trees. But I will spruik our local Indigenous nurseries as well who, even though they're not free necessarily all the time, they provide amazing service to the local community. Um, but yes, the first five thousand ratepayers, I think, again this year will be entitled to um, to trees. And they have amazing, actually, variety of all our local Indigenous nurseries and community nurseries that you can't buy in a commercial nursery. You can't just find that in Bunnings. They they put effort to propagate those species from seeds, and you can really be looking to care for country and restore country in your own garden. So much so, and they actually give you advice. So you know, without any making any comments. The large the large organisations are a very different business model. We we are connected with our community nurseries and they provide a really important function in terms of just advice provision. But there'll be many you know there'll be many projects where they'll go and source seed 
um, when things change. I remember the level crossing removal project, there was a desire for community nurseries or our own open space team to go, go and collect and store seeds so they can propagate um, vegetation that might unfortunately have needed to be removed that was Indigenous to the area. So it's such a powerful thing, and you're so right that you know that experience isn't available in a, a larger commercial larger commercial operation. I want to ask one more question before we move on about the, really the the hard cold fact that we need the private realm, the people's homes, to be working harder and doing better to support the overall quality or environmental quality, uh, human comfort. Let's say. Yeah living within the city of Kingston and one problem we have also from older developments, mid-century developments, the 60s, 70s, 80s, a lot of pavement, a lot of even apartment blocks, units, it's all concreted and the stormwater infrastructure isn't up to scratch and there's nowhere for it to go because it's concreted. Is much the same as government, you know, getting involved in solar, do you think there may be a place for local government given that stormwater is such a concern in the city of Kingston? And we actually had a whole conversation on this program entirely about stormwater and groundwater, yeah. surface water interaction. That that's a, a concern. Is there a space or opportunity for local government to be supporting owners' corporations who may have quite extensive massive concrete yeah. or, or private private development it's super hard and we've recognized it's been super hard for a while so what we decided to do a few years ago is essentially map the drainage network of the whole city and watch the way water would flow and what we've decided is rather than always treat its source we've designed 30 locations in the city i think it's 30 where um, we would construct like regional level wetlands because it's just you know, as things evolve and buildings change, yes, you can have that influence at a site level. But what we've been doing lately is saying to developers, you've got a choice. You either put your rainwater tank and your swale or whatever on your own private property or we offer and you meet Melbourne Water Best Practice in terms of treatment of nitrogen and phosphorus and other things that get into the stormwater system or you make a cash contribution to us and we will continue to build the wetlands that you're seeing in the city of Kingston. The upside of our option is that we also get to maintain them because one of the things about, you know, green infrastructure and even water tanks. Maintenance. And they're so only as good as the owner that takes pride in making sure they're not blocked or not disconnecting them or, um, you know, not maintaining them, as you say. So um, we are... We are looking more at sub-regional solutions sometimes to some of these wicked problems that, um, you know, previous generations of design have brought. A listener has asked, how, to, how do you balance possums, birds, etc., with growing trees in your garden? They seem to destroy everything. So I think this is a question about concerns for biodiversity and conservation mm. and having wildlife in your garden. This is them eating everything. Uh, I think this is what makes our program so valuable. If that's that listener's concern, there are particular species or trees or it might just be that instead of doing trees that will obviously attract possums, there might be some amazing bushes that can be introduced into a smaller garden space or ground cover or um, ground cover with a water feature that can deliver on the biodiversity objectives. But if possums are a concern to that um, particular listener, um, maybe trees isn't the solution. So it's probably just about being, you know, adaptive in your thinking, um, but also recognising that um, 
the homes have come after nature and nature was here first before the home. So we kind of have to reconcile that tension um, and recognise that nature is a part of where we live. And it's probably for a lot of people, it's probably a really terrific, I think out of the pandemic too, it was proven to be a really terrific therapy for people um, around just their connection back to nature. And and emphasise how important that private open space is. So much so. Yeah, look, so much so, but it's getting smaller. So your point you made before about the role of streets and public places, in my mind, in seeing the evolution of a city becomes more and more important. There are going to be parts of our, of Kingston that will always have a traditional open space and back garden because they're not areas where there's going to be a lot of development change. But the, there are going to be areas that are. But, you know, we haven't spoken, and I know we'll head to a different area, but we haven't spoken about food production and like the ability to use your garden to produce food. And I think there is a growing movement towards people, you know, wanting to buy a food cube, for example, and just produce some food within their garden or become part of a community garden as well, a community gardening group as well. So, I, you know, I talked about starting with the plastic swimming pool in the house I first remember. Um, there was also a cricket pitch in that house. It's not necessarily the only two things that occupy someone's open space anymore. It's you know it can be quite different. Yeah, not just the clamshell pool, cricket pitch, and a hills hoist. <laughs> no, no. I mean, we would heritage a house like that these days. I suspect, Alana. Yeah, <laughs> that does happen. You've seen a lot of change happen in the city of Kingston almost thirty years. What are some of your favourite buildings? It's a big question. I, I do – the old ones are memorable but I think they're memorable like the Coffee Palace in Mentone um, because of the work the owners have kind of put into to protecting them. Um, the, the nicest one recently that I've seen, which is just an awesome project, is where I think, and I'm not sure listeners might know, we've had our first passive house built in the city of Kingston in Mentone that was just this um, project that entered the planning system, two units in a street in Mentone, where three generations of family wanted to live together. So recently we had the unique ability to take a very senior member of the Commonwealth Government to look at this thing that was happening in suburban Mentone where um, Sanctum Homes are the builder and they've they've basically created this amazing um, dwelling has no energy bills. And architecturally, for example, and this is just a... Who's the architect of that project? I should know and I knew you might ask me that question and I haven't got my notes in front of me. So maybe one of my colleagues might message you in and let you you know. But I'm I'm so sorry. I'll let you know so you can We'll pop up a picture of it on the the Instagram. We'll follow up with a photo. Thank you. Um, So that passive house is architecturally interesting but really achieving a significant environmental value. I love Morris Moore and I I know I spoke about it before but I just really like what it stands for and the the motivation um, that the developers have had in pursuing it. Um, I think we we had a really lovely – we were very lucky in Moorabbin. We had um, that black – apartment building and I know we talked about black before and white coloured roofs but there's a really significant apartment building that got built Oh, the extension above the office and then it got painted black? No, the one... Near the station? Yeah, near the station. Yes. A really... It has this mesh metal screening and express steel structure. That was was 
um, what was the old Tandy building. And that's that was another retrofit where now I think out, the level crossing and removal project are actually the major tenant. But why did they paint it black? Because we didn't have rules at that time in our planning scheme to say you couldn't. I can see you shaking your head at me. Um, so can the viewers on YouTube. <laughs> we are live streaming. All right. um, <laughs> thanks for reminding me. Um, so, you know, that the... There's an apartment building just along from that that's yeah. really an interesting piece of significant architecture as well, I feel. Um, so there's some of the ones that kind of spring to mind um, for me. Um, um, Do you have a favourite story about any of those buildings? I have a favourite story. Uh, the tobacco smell in Morris Moore I'll never forget when compared with what it now is. Um I think that's been that's been super interesting. Mentone Hotel's interesting because I probably spent a bit of my younger life at the Mentone Hotel. So you've, you mentioned Councillor Hill before, but the, just the evolution of that building and you know our real the work we're putting in now to try and make sure that that ground level of the building is returned to some sort of um, iconic place for people who want to socialise is probably a building that I have a lot of familiarity with. I worked at Mentone for quite some time before the council officers moved to Cheltenham. So we'd spend some time at Mentone Hotel. Um, so that's probably another one. As a child growing up, I knew St Kilda Football Club really well. I used to um, go and watch the football there and watching the evolution of Linton Street and what the site was to what the site now is. Um I think that's kind of an iconic part of our of my history with our city as well. Um, Morty Alec, I think, is quite a special place. My mother actually went to Morty Alec Secondary College. I've got some family history of Mentone as well and family history that kind of predates some of the urban activity that's occurred. Like, you know, the race course estate in Mentone wasn't there when a particular member of my family kind of established... Um, in Mentone. So some of those things about the history of the city um, I feel really connected to. Um, I'm super excited by things like um, the Clayton Business Park, which is this huge – they used to make VW cars there and now Goodman, who are a major industrial developer, are about to reposition that. And again, in, in not dissimilar to Morris Moore, using, you know, the old chimney and using some kind of um, – Reimagining of some of the features on the site to create a contemporary business park. I think that's that's super exciting. I don't know how architects will judge um, the redevelopment on Centre Road, what was the former Sigma Pharmaceutical site, um, but there's a range of apartment buildings and townhouses and the like, and I've enjoyed watching that project evolve to what it's kind of become now, which is kind of home to everyone. There's single-bedroom apartments, the major townhouses... There's an amazing project in there that supports people living with physical disabilities um, where some of the apartments in one of the particular buildings has been tailored um, deliberately for people who need to live in homes that just look distinctly different to what um, we might expect contemporary apartments. NDIS housing. Absolutely. I, I'm glad you mentioned housing because there's a topic that regularly comes up for us on the show and that's the ongoing housing crisis and how people can stay in place, age in place, live in place in, in the area that they love. I, I know certainly for my neighbours yeah. along the Long Beach, they, they love this area. What is council doing to support people who are experiencing housing stress or to mitigate the housing crisis? 
Yeah, we are fierce advocates for um, the development of more community housing in the city. And some of the practical examples where we've been able to achieve some outcomes is that one I mentioned, which was a partnership with Cedar Woods, um, where um, a provider actually provided 10 dwellings plus a caretaker residence for people living with a disability. Another one is in Clarinda, where there used to be a kind of Vic Roads reserve that wasn't doing anything. The road had no effective purpose. And there were these five demountable dwellings in a neighbouring municipality and the community around that area weren't delighted with those dwellings. So our council put a hand up and said, you know, with Vic Roads, we would love to have those dwellings. And they now provide five homes to people who otherwise couldn't live in the city. We did an amazing affordable housing project recently with National Affordable Housing in Chester Road near Southland. Um, it's the most iconic, significant building in the area. It's black, um, it's black Alana again, sorry, and white. I can't wait for your policy Alana. to come in. I know. I think there's a lot of people in my team who equally agree. Um, but there's, um, I think it's 120 dwellings there. And you make the point about people staying in the areas that they want to live. Not only is that a challenge, but also with a city that has so many um, ties with indi- with the industrial sector and manufacturing. Our businesses can't get workers anymore or our schools can't get teachers or our health institutions can't get nurses. So housing has become a, comp- a very different discussion for us. We, um, w- we've put forward a range of government land parcels where we deliberately want the community housing sector to invest in the city of Kingston because... The richness of our community and its functioning, it's just its functioning, is reliant on people living close to where they work. And, you know, everyone, we need our teachers, we need our nurses and increasingly our city is becoming um, so unaffordable for people to be able to live anywhere near where they work. And the environmental costs of that are huge. Like, And the pu- social costs. Absolutely. You, know, you want the best care from your nurse. Why do they have to commute an hour and a half? get to their job absolutely at 2am it's absolutely ridiculous and um we grew up learning a bit about um port phillip housing association who have been doing this for years and they they spent a lot of time dealing with russian communities who were really who identified elwood as their home and what they were learning was that these communities were being pushed out of an area like elwood um well beyond their community roots and the community was essentially um, lost because they were no longer connected to the, their heartland. So, you know, interestingly, we've been doing a lot of work with the Jane community um, around Moorabbin and there, you know, a lot of um, people are moving into Australia from the Jane community and they're looking at establishing in Moorabbin because for members of their community it's affordable. But what they're challenged with is finding diversity of housing that meets different members of that community group at um, different ages, different parts of the age spectrum and the like. So I think, I really do think people are waking up to this idea that housing is no longer just a developer's commodity that gets put into the market for those who can just afford to pay for whatever the current product is, but it, it needs to be a lot more nuanced and it needs to be thought about as an asset for the things that communities rely on. And we do talk a lot about 20-minute neighbourhoods and all the kind of town planning concepts of being able to do things within a 20-minute kind of radius of where you live. But it's so it's so much more critical. And our, you know, our carbon emissions targets that we have are basically, 
you know, often driven by transport choices that people unfortunately don't have. So, How does Kingston in, insert themselves into that mechanism to help more housing come to the either affordable market or social housing or community, which are all very different things yeah. as well, or disability housing? How, how's Kingston actually helping deliver that? So we've identified our government land. We've also identified a couple of parcels of council land that we can put into the market to try and attract um, housing providers. When we get applications for rezoning now, we expect a community housing or a social housing contribution. Um, one of the legacies of Middle Melbourne is that the Department of Housing built a lot of houses in the 60s and 70s. We've been through all of ours in the city of Kingston, looked at where they are, looked at where there's two next to each other. And the government have this idea now called Future Homes where it's like a three-storey apartment architect designed. Um, there's four or five different variations. They kind of fit a double suburban block. Um, and we've written to the government and said, look, you know, these blocks at the moment are probably housing four people when we could be potentially housing 16 people in wonderful locations in an apartment building that's designed in a way that is so much more sustainable than what's there now. There is an inherent challenge because you don't want people ever to feel moved on and there's, you know, that's obviously playing out with issues about the larger public housing buildings in the inner city. But there's certainly advantage from a planning perspective in looking at the next generation of that housing and making sure it's not lost because it would be easy for government to sell land in Kingston to buy more land in the city of Casey because it's cheaper, but that so doesn't address the key worker issue or so doesn't address the, um, the challenge that people who cannot afford but want to live in a place like Kingston, it so doesn't give them that choice. So... Um, I know you've got our mayor coming up, as you said before. If it's not transport, it's affordable housing that she'll talk to you about at length um, and about all the kind of objectives I, she has and we're doing. I look forward to following up that discussion onwards. I'm mindful of the time, so I've got to ask my last question. And that's what gives you hope? Um, look, I'm biased to this city. I think the hope is that I reckon and there are suburbs in Kingston I can nominate now where I see this kind of momentum in areas and communities and things like the Edith Vale Collective or the Hyatt Residence Association or some of the groups and what used to be the undertones of we don't want change or um, things aren't good or the roads are not wide enough for the cars that we need to have in the city um, the community are coming to us and there are leaders in the community that are coming to us that aren't always people who've always lived in Kingston but see this amazing place and all the features it has and are really pushing my team and our, our broader organisation to really be looking at that innovation around streets. I think um, political leadership is so important and... Um, we are really fortunate that some of the things that really matter to the structure of cities um, are at the forefront of thinking at the moment. I'm so excited this year about Plan for Victoria. So they're redoing again the Victorian kind of planning strategy. And I think the environment will feature the um, relationship with traditional owners and their relationship to land is a pillar of that document. 
So I think we're waking up to some of the things that are critical to society functioning. Um, so that gives me that gives me a lot of hope. Um, and sometimes an economic downturn provides a moment for society to really think about what's really important. And I think not only has housing supply been put on the agenda, but just people's basic right to being able to live in a home, have access to rent, um, be in a position where they're close to employment. Um, that gives me hope about what the future holds in terms of people's um, ability to more constructively plan and design cities like Kingston. Mm. Fabulous note to end on. Thank you so much for joining me on the program. Thanks. It's been great to be here. Thanks, Alana. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Stroke can happen to anybody at any age. The best way to help someone is to learn the signs of stroke and know how to act fast. F is for face. Has their face drooped? A is for arms. Can they lift both arms? S is for speech. Is their speech slurred? Do they understand you? T is for time. Call triple zero. Time is critical. If you see any of these symptoms, act fast. Learn the signs of stroke and you could save a life. Go to strokefoundation.org.au forward slash fast to find out more.